Let's, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we begin again. Father, we ask your blessing now. Pray that you would be with us as we spend some time looking into one of the uh, problem areas, some of the challenges. Help us to grasp not just the problem, but the answer, the solution as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, um, I wanted to spend some time on the general topic that I alluded to uh, in the last session as well as this morning of the tendency of people to look to other people. That's not something that I think has gone away. <laughs> um, the 1888 message was supposed to counteract that. And it would be nice to say that it was like one of those diseases where you give them one shot and the problem solved. But I'm thinking it's more something like a nutritional deficiency. <laughs> and you need to keep uh, uh, constantly eating the right stuff to solve the problem. I don't know. That's a bad illustration. Um, when Ellen White wrote this, talking about looking uh, the, uh, the, the, the devil has been trying to get man to look to man, what did she mean? It's, it's real easy for people to take that comment and adopt a very independent attitude. Um, I think virtually... Everyone who's ever studied the spirit of prophecy and had a streak of independence in them has been attracted to that statement. <laughs> um, you like the idea of something that, that gives you a little leeway, so to speak. Um, I'm going to, um, I, well, it's a contact lens is what it is. I'm going to put it over here. <laughs> Yeah, Audioverse can edit that out too, hopefully. But uh, <clears throat> there comes a point where it's easier to read the book without the contacts in. So <laughs> I think it's about 50, but it happens. So get ready; it'll come to you too. Um, okay. <clears throat> what, what are we talking about with this tendency of man to look to man and and? Where does that crop up, and how does it develop, and what's it all about? That's, that's kind of the gist of what I'd like to, to look at here. Um, this, is a, this is an issue which came up long before 1888. Um, Ellen White, in um, Volume 2 of the Testimonies, early on in Volume 2, she wrote an interesting thing where she said, People are always writing to me and asking me or asking my husband, shall we do this? Shall we do that? Shall we engage in this enterprise? Shall I wear this? Shall I wear that? Shall I eat this or shall I eat that? And she said, I refuse to be conscience for you. If your experience is founded on us, speaking of herself and her husband, you have no experience. You will fail of everlasting life. 
that's a pretty serious assertion. Um, <coughs> let me find that statement for you here. 1868 is when she wrote that. All who relied on others to direct them, quoting now, walking by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, acting as other act, others act, would fail of everlasting life unless they became sensible of their wavering character and corrected it. Reference on that is volume two, page 130. That was 1868. <clears throat> James White was in many ways the acknowledged leader administratively of the church. <clears throat> James was incredibly smart. And he had the advantage of being married to someone who had a very close connection to the Lord and occasionally received inside information. Um, James saved every one of our institutions at one time or another. You know, They'd make this mistake, and he'd run back to Battle Creek, and he'd save the day, so to speak. Yeah. He was a good businessman. He had a sharp business head on him. If he had a failing, it was that he tended to work too much and did not ever successfully cultivate um, a protege somebody coming along behind him. Some wise soul someplace made a comment one time. He said, <clears throat> no man's life work is complete until he has trained his successor. Yeah, so if you're doing something important and you haven't trained someone to continue it on, you're not done. James's career was interrupted by a series of strokes. And when he could no longer serve as General Conference President, George Butler served for a period of time. Putting my explanation onto things here, and I hope it's reasonably close to accurate. Butler saw James <coughs> perhaps at his administrative worst. After the strokes, James had a hard time being patient with his brethren because they did dumb things. They made mistakes. And he would be sometimes very short-tempered with them. But James was the venerable patriarch. What are you going to do? You work in the Review and Herald office, and you make a mistake, and James jumps all over you. What are you going to do? You can't fire him. He can't say too much. He might fire you. <laughs> and so what happened is that the workers tended to withdraw. They pulled back. I can understand that. You don't like the way I do the job? Well, just do it yourself, man. You know, I'm already putting in way too much overtime here anyhow because this was a, a job that required some self-sacrifice, right? Uriah Smith actually quit one time, went down to Battle Creek, got a job carving engravings for the local newspaper. 
Paid twice as much as he'd gotten for being the editor of the review. So there was some self-sacrifice involved. But they pulled back. And as they pulled back, James pressed ahead because he kept seeing work that wasn't being done. This is maybe the image of administration that George Butler retained in his memory. <coughs> and when George became president, and these guys out in the West Coast started acting up, well, he figured it was time for the president to act like a president. And that's why he was so perplexed when Ellen White didn't support him in that. She wrote back and she said, your position as president is the very reason you should show greater re restraint and control and, and, and more carefully manifest the, the patient spirit of Jesus. Makes it all the more important that you get it right. We had a hard time relating that, and I think most of us would probably too. You know, hey, I'm the president. Ought to mean something, yeah? But what it means is that you lead by example. Well, anyhow, <clears throat> okay. As I mentioned in the last uh, session there, uh, Jones and Wagner reproved, were reproved. Butler and Smith took those letters and um, used them for their side of things, and they were reproved. And coming out of that whole thing, as I said, when I read through the 1888 message, 1888, miss, no, 1888 materials volumes. Over and over and over again, what I'm finding, what I'm seeing, not to the exclusion of all else, but what I'm seeing are these comments of how we aren't working together and we aren't allowing people to develop their own personal working relationship with Christ. Let me read you some of these. <clears throat> Here's one. Men will never develop wisdom in management, either in business matters or in spiritual things, if they are educated to depend upon other men's brains to think and plan for them. Okay. This is uh, almost everything here from the 1888 materials. That happens to be page 1613, 1613. Okay. <clears throat> The Lord has presented before me that men in responsible positions are standing directly in the way of the workings of God upon his people. Because they think that the work must be done, the blessing must come in a certain way which they have marked out, and they will not recognize that which comes in any other way. That's micromanagement. Ooh, that would be easy to find out if we looked that up. It would be early on, because it's on page 113 in the 1888 material, so it's probably either actually before or right around 1888, I'd guess. <clears throat> okay, that same statement goes on. God has appointed channels of light, but these are not necessarily through the minds of any particular man or set of men. When all shall take their appointed places in God's work and not allow others to mold them at will, then one great advance will have been made toward letting the light shine upon the world. Now notice that. That's, that's an unusual statement. She says, when all will take their right place and not allow others to mold them at, the will, at will. She's saying, you have to have some independence. If you are depending on Christ, 
you will have a proper but still balanced with a sense of unity independence. It's kind of like John the Baptist because he had bowed low before the king of kings, he could stand before Herod. Right? Okay? Um, <clears throat> here's one that is right at 1888 time. Elder Butler thought that everybody must yield to him. He came to think that he must command everything. This destroyed his brain power. He was only a finite instrument. He could not impart what he had not received. <clears throat> you know, the more they do with these MRIs and whatnot, with all the brain scans and stuff they're doing, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she was physiologically 100% correct here. That somehow the idea of bearing this responsibility of me thinking that I have to be able to tell you every detail to do, that's, that's got to be wearing. That's interesting. I took that to mean he wasn't receiving from God because God wasn't telling him what the next guy should do. Right. <clears throat> then she says, men have placed Elder Butler where God should be placed and by so doing have ruined their own religious experience and have also ruined Elder Butler. And the church was becoming strengthless, Christless, because they glorified men when every jot of glory should be given to God. It has always just slapped me in the face that administrative policy has a huge amount to do with religious experience. Whether you're on the top end or the bottom end of whatever the working relationship is. <clears throat> Notice what happened there. They depended on him, and that destroyed his nerve, his brain power, and it ruined their own religious experience. This is a lose-lose situation. There's only one that's winning, and that's the devil. Um, there are, uh, there's, there's a ton of information like this. Um, at the end of this particular chapter, just, just to get the idea across, I put a footnote. I don't know if you can see it. I mean, these are, these are the regular footnotes for the chapter. And then there's this thing down here, this big long thing, okay? It says this, those interested in further study on this topic will find a wealth of information contained in the Ellen G. White 1888 materials. The following pages with the surrounding context are especially pertinent. And then there's like, I don't know, just guessing, probably 60 pages that I, that I list. It's all through those books is, is the point, okay? Let me read you some of these, these others here. God's servants are not to be treated as the servants of the conference, to be bound and released at their pleasure. Okay? Now, <clears throat> unsanctified human nature We'll grab these statements, okay? Especially in early 21st century America, you know, where we've grown up since anybody since World War II, type of, well, nah, anybody since the 60s or whatever, 
has grown up with a strong emphasis on individuality, right? Our culture is not at all like Japanese culture or something, you know, where, where it's a group type of thing. We're, we're big. America is big on the independent, okay? anti authority yeah, yeah, right, the establishment, you know, down with the establishment, you know, the whole thing. Um, so it's easy for people like me. I mean, I grew up in the 70s, for crying out loud. You know, it's like, you know, the establishment was terrible. You know, whatever, you know. So I read this. God's servants are not to be treated as the servants of the conference, to be bound and released to their pleasure. And my natural response is, yeah! <laughs> Take that! <laughs> Don't be impinging on my liberty. Well, there is a degree of truth in that. <laughs> the challenge for me is to treat this properly, <laughs> okay? Um, but she goes on. Leave God a chance to do something for those who love him and do not impose upon them rules and regulations, which if followed will leave them destitute of the grace of God as were the hills of Goboa without due rain. Your very many resolutions need to be reduced to one-third their number, and great care should be taken as to what resolutions are framed. Now, when I move up into administration and I'm a vice principal and a principal, those are the statements I need to be reading. <laughs> Not the ones that tell me I need to, you know, be thumbing my nose at my superiors, <laughs> you know. Leave people some room. Leave people a chance to pray. Let them figure out what God wants them to do. But how in the world do you do this and still stay in some sort of a united, organized fashion? Because again, you know, the Lord is a God of order. Okay? Here's a particularly strong one. <clears throat> Satan's methods tend to one end, to make men the slaves of men. Just roll that one around in your head a few times. Satan's methods, Satan's, yeah, Satan's methods tend to one end, to make men the slaves of men. Ellen White often uses that expression about um, the business world and the labor unions and other things, binding themselves in bundles to be burned, she says. You know, remember that one? Okay. This is where people surrender their freedom to relate, you know, to, to respond to the Lord. And they, they lock themselves into some group. They are bound up, she says, as binding up as bundles to be burned. Satan's methods tend to one end, to make men the slaves of men. When this is done, confusion and distrust, jealousies and evil surmisings are the result. Okay? <clears throat> Here's one for the rebels amongst us. The time will come when it will be the duty, the duty of Christ's ambassadors to declare God's will in plain terms, to let men know that they are God's workmen, to be led and taught of God, and that they must carry out their elevated mission as he shall dictate. Religious liberty means more to us as a people than many take it to mean. Um, I 
I think just about everybody at any level of denominational structure would probably agree with me when I hazard the guess that denominational working policy is vastly too complicated. You ever seen one of those books? They're massive. <laughs> All the rules and regulations of this and that and what the pastor does this and so-and-so does that and somebody blah, blah, blah and this and that and the other thing. A related concept, and I'm, I know I'm walking on hot-button issues for all the rebel, independent-minded souls amongst us. A related issue would be the church manual. Did you know that in 1883, there was a church manual? It was all written and presented to the General Conference, and the General Conference, in session, voted it down and said, there's nothing wrong with that manual. It's the whole idea of having one. We don't want it. And then they asked the General Conference president, George Butler, to write an explanation. And George Butler, the guy that Ellen White said, you know, he was too authoritarian, right? He writes the explanation and he says, why do we want a creed? All the other denominations have gone down this route before us. We will stop before we even begin. And so the the church manual in 1883 was voted down unanimously at the general conference session. And Butler said, it is probable the idea will never come up again. Well, it did, as you may be aware. And it was published in, what, 1929, I think? Our first church manual, 1929. And it was... You read the foreword to it, and they go to great lengths to say, this is not a creed. This is not the authority. This is simply a collection of Bible and spirit prophecy saying how we function. But you know, human nature is human nature. And within two years, by 1931, was the first case that I know of, of two brethren being disfellowshipped. And the reason given was they were out of harmony with the church manual. Now, they were out of harmony with the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, too, and they deserved to be disfellowshipped. I'm not defending them. But the reason given <laughs> was they were not in harmony with the church manual. So how do we do this? How do we give everyone the chance to think and develop their own personal independent relationship with God and still, and still move unitedly as an army with banners. That's a challenge. <clears throat> a couple more here. There are men holding positions, holding responsible positions, and many think that they would prove traitors to the cause and work of God should they intimate that these men were in the wrong. Remember that she said? Did you follow that? There are men holding responsible positions. And because I don't think he would take any offense whatsoever, I'm going to use Elder Wilson as an example. Elder Wilson is holding a very responsible position right now. And she's saying, back in her day, that there were... Find it many 
think that they would prove traitors to the cause and work of God should they intimate that Elder Wilson was wrong in something. You can't say that. That's, that, that, that's Elder Wilson. You can't say that stuff. Really? But what if maybe he was just wrong a little bit on something? I can't say that? The great sin which has been entering the ranks of Seventh-day Adventists is the sin of exalting man and placing him where God should be. This was demonstrated at Minneapolis. Time after time after time, she links these, this administrative kind of stuff, which has to do with our personal relationship with Christ and our relationship with our brethren. And she ties it to Minneapolis. That's why it shows up so many times in those books, 1888 materials books. It's just reams of that stuff in there. This is perhaps the most graphically horrifying illustration that Ellen White ever used. Men in responsible positions have manifested the very attributes that Satan has revealed. They have sought to rule minds, to bring their reason and their talents under human jurisdiction. There has been an effort to bring God's servants under the control of men who have not the knowledge and wisdom of God or an experience under the Holy Spirit's power. Now notice that she uses this interesting metaphor right here. Principles have been born, as in birth, okay? Principles have been born that should never have seen the light of day. In continuing the metaphor, the illegitimate child should have been stifled as soon as it breathed the first breath of life. You know what stifled means? Suffocated. Yeah. These principles, which should never see the light of day, were born illegitimately. They should have been suffocated immediately. Yeah. It's pretty graphic stuff. I mean, she, she's not given to really morbid illustrations, you know? I mean, she's usually more with, you know, birds singing things. <laughs> but that's... that's that's how it works. That's what it was like. Now, <clears throat> how does it happen? Is it the leader's fault? I'm going to say usually not. It's my opinion. It's usually not the fault of leadership, initially. This is a um, Review and Herald article titled, Look to God for Wisdom. <clears throat> Could get you a date on that, I suppose. Well, someplace. I'm not spotting my little footnote number, but it's got to be in here someplace. Either that is a terrible typo. I'm sorry, I will, if somebody's interested, I'll try and track it down later. <clears throat> Here's what she says. Oh, okay. Um, 1894, August 7 and 14. It was a two-part article. It was not footnoted. It's right in the text. Okay. The people of God have educated themselves in such a way that they have come to look to those in positions of trust as guardians of truth and have placed men where God should be. That's a construction she uses quite commonly, is placing men where God should be. 
when perplexities have come upon them, instead of seeking God, they have gone to human sources for help and have received only such help as man can give. Who are we talking about here? Leadership or laity? Think primarily laity. This might apply to leadership sometimes, but this is probably laity. The people of God have looked to positions of trust as the guardians, okay? When perplexities have come upon the people, instead of seeking God, they have gone to human sources for help and have received only such help as man can give. Right there is the first mistake. We, as laymen, have got to learn what help comes from whom. Going on. God removes his wisdom from men who are looked up to as God. He has to. He has to. Or it will surely strengthen a very, very bad habit. Those who occupy positions of trust are greatly injured when they are tempted by their brethren to think that they must always be consulted by the workers. Okay, follow that. Here's your conference president. Not, not thinking of any individuals. Okay, <laughs> Here's a conference president. It says he is greatly injured by his brethren when someone comes to him and says, Elder blank, the people over this church were thinking about doing something. Don't you think we need to get involved in that? Uh, maybe you could give them some help on that, some guidelines. That's an injury to the conference president. To think that they must always be consulted by the workers and that the people should bring to them their difficulties and trials. It is a mistake to make men believe that the workers for Christ should make no move save that which has first been brought before some responsible man. That's a mistake. No, you can't do that because we haven't checked it out with the pastor, the conference president. You can't do that. Now, there are some things that you should not do. Right? There are some things you should not do without counsel, consultation, touching base, letting people know. But if God asks you to do a particular thing, it's up to you to know what God's asking you to do and to do it. Okay? Going on. Here's the key thing. Though at first the brother in leadership may be reluctant to take so great a responsibility as that of being a counselor in this improper sense to his brethren. Okay, it's a long, cumbersome sentence. If I were editing this, I'd break it up in about three. But you know. So here's somebody who's a leader. He may be reluctant at first to be, take this great responsibility of telling all these people what they need to do. Okay? Though at first he may be reluctant. If he does do it, he will finally encourage the very dependence that he once lamented. Just, just follow that. You know? If you're a leader and somebody comes to you and says, oh, what should I do? And it's an area where the answer properly comes from God directly to them. 
And do you say, well, that's really not something that I can answer? I'm reluctant to take that responsibility. Oh, but please. No, I think you should pray that out for yourself. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, well, OK, I think this would be best. Right there, you cross the line. And if he does do it, he will finally encourage the very dependence he once lamented and will come to feel grieved if matters are not brought to his attention. He, the leader, will want to understand the reason for movements made in the cause that have no connection with his branch of the work. Whoa, whoa, what are you doing over there? Who said that was a good idea? I don't think that's a good idea. It's not even my, not my branch of the work. <laughs> Serious problem. Now listen, this, this is so classic. <clears throat> it may be argued that the Lord gives special wisdom to those to whom he has entrusted grave responsibilities. Okay, so here's my argument. Ellen White's saying, don't depend on brother so-and-so. And I say, oh, but please, brother so-and-so, he's, he's been the, the conference president, he's been, he's been an evangelist, he's got so much experience, he's a, he's a, he has such a responsible position. Don't you think God would give him special wisdom to help me with my problem? It may be argued that the Lord gives special wisdom to those to whom he has entrusted grave responsibilities. The Lord does give special wisdom to him who has sacred trust. Oh, thank you. I can go ask him. Here's the special wisdom. If the human agent, the leader, moment by moment makes God his only helper and walks humbly with him, God will then give light and knowledge and wisdom in order that his human agent, the leader, the conference president or whoever, may be able to guide his brethren who would look to him to count look to him for counsel as to their duty. Ah, see? If he walks humbly with God, the Lord will give him special wisdom to help me when I come to him trying to figure out my duty. Now why it says that? The next sentence says what the special wisdom is. In a clear and forcible manner, the leader will point those who inquire to a source that is untainted and pure from the defects and errors that are so apparent in humanity. He may, for it is his privilege, refuse to be brains and conscience for his brethren. If a leader is continually appealed to for advice, he is in danger of thinking that he cannot err and that he is capable of judging the cases of his brethren, and in this way he brings peril upon the church. Spirituality will, spirituality will wane under an influence of this kind, and the knowledge of God's will will become more and more indistinct, while the sayings of men become, more, uh, become of more and more importance in the eyes of the people. God is not exalted, but is put in the shade by human inventions and by those who may be so deceived as to think that they are doing God service. One more. This is, as a teacher, I love this sentence. I love this statement. Going right on. She's talking about this dependence on, on being told what to do. Okay, And then she contrasts it. and She says, the education that should be given to all is that they should exercise faith, that they should go to God in earnest prayer, and learn to think for themselves. To meet difficulties and plow through them by the help of God is a lesson of the highest value. A church 
that depends on this heavily hierarchical management of things that ought to be individual. Now, I'm not saying all hierarchical construct, you know, structure is bad. There's, there's you know, Moses and all the, the whole thing that rulers of thousands and hundreds and tens and whatnot. That's kind of hierarchical too, you know, okay? I'm not saying hierarchy per se, a vertical structure is bad, but when it, it gets into the realm of that which is properly kept between the individual and God, you got a problem. And you end up with a bunch of people who don't have what it takes to meet difficulties and plow through them by the help of God. You're going to end up with a whole bunch of things that aren't getting done. And we've got a whole bunch of things that need to get done in this world. Let us then remember that our weakness and inefficiency are largely the result of looking to man, of trusting in man to do those things for us that God has promised to do for those who come unto him. Now that, I submit, is at least heavily involved in the mix of the whole 1888 thing. You'll find it all through those books on the 1888 materials. I think with the exception of that one section from the review article, everything I read there was from the 1888 materials. <coughs> That's the problem that Ellen White said God sent Jones and Wagner to address. Therefore, God gave to his servants the three angels' message in verity. Because the three angels' message, as I mentioned this morning, is all about dealing with authority. When authority comes smack dab head on, you know, the world and every piece of authority that it can muster will be promoting a Sunday law. And God will sit there and calmly say, don't do that. Do not do that. Do not receive the mark of the beast. Those are lessons that I think Jones and Wagner embodied probably somewhat imperfectly, since they're human beings. Obviously, early on, they maybe, when they, they wrote those articles, they manifested their a spirit of a little too much independence. They should have realized and thought ahead and said, you know, I do not want to hurt the cause that I love. I need to, I need to, to work this through with my brethren before we make an issue out of it. It's one of those great what-if type of things, you know. <clears throat> what would have happened if, in a calm and peaceful manner, Brethren Wagner and Jones had, had a quiet business lunch <laughs> with Brethren Butler and Smith and chatted amicably about the law in Galatians and the Alamani and the Huns. <laughs> you know? What would have happened? Well, I can't tell you. Wouldn't it have been interesting to know? Um, so little things have a, have a way of cascading up into to bigger issues. Um, so what's the practical take-home lesson from that? I would say the practical thing is gaining an experience in knowing what 
is properly reserved to the Lord's authority in your life. If you are, <clears throat> what should I say? Suppose you are hired as the, um, the yard maintenance individual for your local church. And the pastor says, you know, it's been a, two weeks since the lawn's been mowed on the front of the church. I'd really like you to mow the lawn. And you say, the Lord has not impressed me that I need to mow the lawn. <laughs> I'm going to submit to you that that's a pretty clear case where probably you should be listening to you know, another channel of authority. I don't think that's one where the Lord reserves it to himself. Partially, if for no other reason, then you're being paid. <laughs> that's an easy one. If your employer comes to you and says, we need you to work on Saturday, that's an easy one. It's all the ones in between that are hard. <laughs> I don't have a, a formula for you. I do know this, that God will call people and individuals to do things, especially in the last days, without necessarily all the same corporate endorsement that we've become accustomed to. Remember the whole calling from the plow type of thing? Corporate headquarters rarely. Now, I enjoyed Pastor Howard's testimony. There's a case where they, you know, kind of called somebody from the plow. They rarely do that. <laughs> they rarely do that. So what falls, you know, what, what, what is reserved to the jurisdiction of, of God and what is properly you know, through, comes through a, a chain of authority of, of human leadership? I do not know. I do not know how to define that. And I will avoid trying to define it because I'd probably misdefine it and then some poor soul might think that I had it right. <laughs> but I know this. <clears throat> Jesus tells us to come to him and to listen to him. And I know that he will tell you which questions he reserves for himself. I'm going to hazard the guess that we will all probably make mistakes in, the, in those, those areas. We'll probably all learn a few things by trial and error. You know, there's a spirit prophecy comment. I'll look it up if you insist, but Take me a moment. Ellen White talking about Peter and his little fiasco about not sitting with the Gentiles. She says, there are some lessons which can only be learned through failure. 
Yeah. But you take your failures, you learn the lesson, and she says you turn it into a success. Okay. So I've made my mistakes. Probably not all of them yet. You'll probably make some too. Don't give up. Don't take the easy road out. The easy road is having somebody else tell you. The hard but satisfyingly egotistical road is not letting anybody tell you anything. It must be a lot of fun. There are some people who seem to enjoy it. <laughs> I would say this strikes very close to the heart of the third angel's message, very close to the heart of righteousness by faith. I don't find it theoretically presented by Jones and Wagner much. Some. They did some sermons on looking unto Jesus that you can take those thoughts out of. It was not something that they stressed, but I think it was inherent in the actions of those who... Jones and Wagner for themselves, you know. The, the very fact that they were willing to go out for a year and a half and travel around with Ellen White, contrary to everything that anybody at Battle Creek would have wanted them to do, tells me that they were saying, well, you know, we're, recommend, we're recognizing a different and higher level of authority here. Keeping authority straight, I would submit, is very close to the heart of the third angel's message, and very close to the heart of righteousness by faith. And the recognition that the ultimate authority is the one that you can depend on in every subservient case. The general will keep the major and the sergeant off your back. Jesus will defeat the powers of the world. That's the way it seems to make sense to me. I think our time is about up again. Let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we want to look to Jesus. We want to work with our brothers and sisters. We want to encourage those who are coming along beneath us that they not look to us, but that they look to you. We want to be polite to those above us who may sometimes feel that they have authority or perhaps they do not. Father, we are not sufficient for these things. I pray that you would give us great wisdom, that you would teach us by our failures, and that you would increase our faith by placing us in hard positions where we depend on you and find that you are faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org